Then Helen, daughter of Zeus, took other counsel. Straight away she cast into the wine of which they were drinking a drug to quiet all pain and strife, and bring forgetfulness of every ill. Whoso should drink this down, when it is mingled in the bowl, would not in the course of that day let a tear fall down over his cheeks. No, not though his mother and father should lie there dead, or though before his face men should slay with the sword his brother or dear son, and his own eyes beheld it. This is Ghost in Your Blood, the podcast where I talk about the accidental scientific discoveries of myth and folklore and superstition. So welcome or welcome back. This is episode three and my name is Samantha and this is a podcast that I do purely out of my own entertainment because it's something that I genuinely find super interesting And I have so many weird Google holes that I fall down that I pretty much just want to take people along with me for. On today's episode, I'm going to be talking pretty heavily about the lore and beliefs that surround the poppy. So obviously, I don't need to ramp up to this slowly. Obviously, you know we're going to end up talking about morphine and opiates, but I definitely want to dive into what people thought that the poppy was significant for and what its purposes were and a lot of the myths surrounding it, as well as the general pagan beliefs that go along with it, because there are so many. It's been used for such a long time and there's a lot to get into with it. So this episode might be a little bit longer than some of the previous ones, and I'm all right with that because there's so much interesting information to do with poppies. So let's get into episode three. So of course, we have our initial quote to unpack, like will happen in pretty much every episode moving forward. The quote that I've used in this episode is from Homer's The Odyssey, which is an epic poem written by Homer approximately from 765 or 725 BCE. In the quote that I've used, Homer is describing a banquet given by Milanaus in Telemachus's honor. Sorry if I pronounced those incorrectly, I did try. In the quote, Helen adds a filter to the wine to allay the guest's sadness at remembering Ulysses. This was the drink of forgetfulness, erasing all sadness as indicated by its name, Nepenthes. The etymology for which is ne, or not, and penthes, meaning pain. So literally, not pain. And figuratively, it was used to mean that which chases away sorrow. In the Odyssey, Nepenthes Pharmacon, or the anti-sorrow drug, is a magical potion given to Helen by Atalidamna, the wife of the noble Egyptian Thon, and it quells all sorrows and forgetfulness. It's generally considered to be a poppy-based medication. Being that it was such an old book, there isn't any hard evidence that it was for sure an opium-based potion. Desicorides believed it to be borage, and it was also accepted to be Indian hemp. But of course, one of the biggest issues with identifying this is that by the time Homer wrote this, the Greeks had already had a really long history of using poppies and opium So it was very possible that Nepenthe could have been something else, or maybe he would have referred to it specifically as opium. 
So the earliest found uses of poppy, I literally couldn't find what the earliest ones would be because they're so popular. It's been around for so long. One of the earliest recorded references to a poppy would be in 3400 BCE, where the Sumerians referred to it as Hulgil, or the joy plant. This then passed from Sumerians to Assyrians, and then passed it on to the Egyptians. Now, the Sumerian clay tablets are another one of those things where there isn't any absolute hard evidence that it is absolutely poppy that they are talking about. It could have been another plant, but it is generally agreed by scholars to have been poppy. Now, of course, there are different species of poppies out there, but the one that mostly we'll be talking about is going to be Pepiver somniferum. This is the opium poppy and the name somniferum comes from somnus meaning sleep and ferret meaning bring. Now it is my understanding that it is technically illegal to grow your own papaver somniferous. There are many other species of poppies that you can grow that are not illegal, but also I think the illegality lays a lot more in the quantity and intended purpose for said poppies because I've seen several books and articles of just casual botany enthusiasts who are just really excited about their opium poppies that they have in their gardens at home. But you know, don't do anything illegal because I said it might not be. Going back a little bit of time from Homer's The Odyssey to about 1500 BCE, I want to talk a little bit about presence of the opium poppy and its uses in the Ebers papyrus. In the papyrus, there are references to the medicinal use of the opium poppy, and the text recommends using an opium-based preparation for calming children who shouted or cried too much. And this, of course, was justified because Isis also used poppy to soothe her son Horus. By the way, that is Horus, H-O-R-U-S, not like Horus and Jasper from 101 Dalmatians, just just to be clear. So like I said before, it's very hard to find genuine first-hand accounts of the use of Poppy and the beliefs that were in place, just because it was so insanely old and it was so commonly used. So obviously, based even just off of the first quote, it was used by the Greeks very early on in, like I said, 6 to 700 BCE, and of course, probably well before that was being written about. And of course, the Greeks and Middle Eastern areas were not the only civilizations to be experimenting with plants at the time. One of my favorite things would be that in European witchcraft, it was suspected that they have used opium poppies in flying ointments. I really want to believe this because it is one of the most fantastic things that I have ever heard because if you think about the image of a witch riding a broom and where the broom is placed and where one would have to put some poppy-based ointment for the skin to be able to properly absorb it, it's just... it. It's just so bizarre. It's so out of left field and hilarious to think of these just old timey naked women walking around on broomsticks covered in poppy juice. It's it's a lot. But 
unfortunately, pure speculation. There is no hard evidence for it, which is so upsetting because I want the facts. I need to know the truth. What were they doing with their broomsticks? Anyways, so it's suspected that papaversomniferum offset the toxins of nightshade as the ingredients listed in a quote by Francis Bacon. And this is another thing I'm very excited about. It's a book called The Encyclopedia of the Occult. It's by Lewis Spence. And this is the quote directly from it. The ointment that witches use is reported to be made of the fat of children digged out of their graves, of juices of smallage, wolfbane, and sink foil mingled with the meal of fine wheat. But I suppose that the soponiferous medicines are likest to do it which are henbane, hemlock, mandrake, moonshade, tobacco, opium, saffron, poplar leaves, etc. I do also just want to talk real quick about Lewis Spence. So he was a journalist, a folklorist, and an occult scholar, which sounds just real cool to me. He was a fellow of the Royal Anthropological Institute of Great Britain and Ireland and vice president of the Scottish Anthropological and Folklore Society, And some of his books would be The Encyclopedia of Occultism, Atlantis in America, The History of Atlantis, The Occult Sciences in Atlantis, The Atlantis of Plato. This dude was like super into Atlantis. Um, He wrote some mythology books like The Dictionary of Mythology, Myths and Legends of Babylonia and Assyria. This book list is absolutely insane. And he also wrote some poetry in 1953. And while Lewis Spence is really cool and his collective works really account for a lot of the ancient past of the UK and Europe, the man from which that quote from the Encyclopedia of the Occult was from is Francis Bacon. And if you don't know who Francis Bacon was, he is the father of the scientific method. So he was the one that was really starting to push for empirical evidence over general myths and just doing things because it kind of made sense. So he's kind of the father of modern science. The father of empiricism, for sure. While Bacon had a very vast, successful life and career, one of the things that he was involved in was searching for hidden meanings in myth and fables in such texts as the wisdom of the ancients and succeeding earlier occultist and neoplatonic attempts to locate hidden wisdom in pre-Christian myths. Now, witches are another one of those things that are very, very difficult to track down exact historical dates. Um, One of the earliest records of a witch would be in the Bible in the book 1 Samuel. This was thought to be written around 931 BCE and 721 BCE. It tells the story of when King Saul sought the witch of Endor to summon the dead prophet Samuel's spirit to help him defeat the Philistine army. This is where things kind of get a little bit muddy because, of course, there's history of witches and then there's history of poppies being used around the same time. Like, they're both existing in that, like, 700 BCE era, but whether or not the witches in Europe were using poppy at that time or if that came later, because Francis Bacon's time was uh, around the 1600s sort of remains to be seen if they were really using poppies in the exact same way that Bacon would have reported them using it. However, what we do have 
is records of the Greeks using poppies. Now, there were a few cults in ancient Greece, and when I say a cult, it's not anything like a cult that we know it of today. It's sort of like a religious sect. In a polytheistic religion, there are just so many gods and or goddesses that can be worshipped that it was very common for a household to have a particular god that they would regularly pray to and do rituals for. This is where some poppy usage comes in for some particular gods. So I want to talk a little bit about the Eleusinian and the Dionysian rites, or the mysteries, as they're called. And these are sacred rites performed by Greek people for the gods that they were worshipping. And they're called mysteries because if you told people what you were doing, they would kill you. It was pretty intense. So maybe it's a little bit closer to what a cult is like today. Um, It's just the particulars are a little bit hazy. And of course, over time and across history, some of the details have gotten out. The Eleusinian mysteries were rites performed in the name of Demeter. The rituals were based on a symbolic reading of the story Demeter and Persephone and provided initiates with a vision of the afterlife so powerful that it changed the way they saw the world and their place in it. Participants were freed from a fear of death through the recognition that they were immortal souls, temporarily in mortal bodies. In the same way that Persephone went down to the land of the dead and returned to that of the living each year, so would every human die only to live again on another plane of existence or in another body. Now, what is it that you suppose was giving them these visions and this new perspective on life? Drugs. It was drugs. And we also have the Dionysian mysteries, which, of course, were sacred rites for Dionysus. And he is the god of grape harvest, winemaking and wine, of ritual madness and ecstasy, However, after investigating the philosophy of Dionysus and the real nature of Dionysian ritual orgies, we can also add the attributes of the god of altered states of consciousness and sexual satisfaction and orgasm. Psychoactive plants, which induce a certain form of altered states of consciousness, have been used for various spiritual purposes. Most of the shamanic and pagan cultures used those plants for different intentions, such as unraveling some unknown facts and realms of human mind and subconscious. I have a lovely little quote from the Diocinian Mysteries, or somebody's version of it. Following the torches as they dipped and swayed in the darkness, they climbed mountain paths and head thrown back and eyes glazed, danced to the beat of the drum which stirred their blood. Or staggered drunkenly with what was known as the Dionysius Gate, in this state of ecstasis, or enthusiasmos, they abandoned themselves, dancing wildly, shouting oi, that being E-U-O-I, the god's name, and at that moment of intense rapture became identified with the god himself. They became filled with his spirit and acquired divine powers. Now, when I said this was somebody's quote, of course, I'm going to let you know who it was. His name is Umit Sayin, and he wrote a paper called Psychoactive Plants Consumed in Religious Rituals, which is a fantastic read, and he talks quite a lot about uh, the use of opium as well as some other psychoactive plants in 
rites such as the Dionysian Mysteries or the Eleusinian Mysteries. So while the history of the ritual side of things is very interesting, I don't know that I really need to go super in-depth on whether or not this medication works, because we know it does, because we are all very, very well aware of morphine and opiates in general. What is very interesting about the ancient cultures, especially in comparison to modern cultures, is that it seems that poppy use came both recreationally and medicinally, which, of course, we know today that morphine and opiates have that exact issue. So let's just get right into what the ancient processing and harvesting methods would have been. I've got a quote directly from our boy Discordes. Those who wish to obtain the sap of the poppy must go after the dew has dried and draw their knife around the star in such a manner as to not penetrate the inside of the capsule, and to also make straight incisions down the sides. Then, with your finger, wipe the extruding tear into a shell. When you return to it not long after, you will find the sap thickened, and the next day you will find it much the same. Pound the sap in your mortar and roll the mass into pills. Now, of course, this is not the only way to consume opium. It was consumed several ways, including inhalation of vapors, suppositories, medical poultices, and as a combination with hemlock for suicide. So approximately 8 to 14% of opium is made up of the analgesic alkaloid morphine. And now that we are very specifically talking about morphine directly, how about some etymology for that? The man who discovered morphine in particular, Friedrichs Surturner, named the compound morphine from the name of the Roman god Morpheus, who is the god and personification of dreams. So in regards to what is happening inside your body when you ingest morphine or opiates in general, is that the receptors that morphine affects are called mu1 receptors, causing analgesia, and it also affects mu2 receptors, causing drowsiness and mental clouding. There are kappa receptors as well, and that causes dysphoria and mild respiratory depression. Now, in the case of an opioid overdose, death usually occurs because of this respiratory suppression. One last receptor that the opioids affect would be delta receptors, and that causes delusions and hallucinations. So breaking down specifically how morphine exerts its analgesic effect, when it is acting on the mu opioid receptor of sensory neurons, when it is binding to the receptor, it activates associated proteins, and these act to inhibit adenylate cyclase, which reduces the level of intracellular CAMP. The proteins also activate potassium channels and inactivates calcium channels, causing the neuron to hyperpolarize. When a nerve is hyperpolarized, the end result is decreased nerve conduction and reduced neurotransmitter release, and that is what blocks the perception of pain signals. So morphine in particular was not, of course, identified until much later than the general use of poppies, and as I mentioned before, it was discovered by a man named Friedrich Surturner. This was in December of 1804 in Paderborn, Germany. 
And fun little side note is that morphine was the first ever alkaloid to be isolated from any plant ever. And being the 1800s, general informed consent wasn't really a thing. So he totally tested this out on dogs and some people who probably had no idea what they were signing up for. So one of the things that Sir Turner was hoping to achieve was to find a treatment for alcohol and, get this, opium addiction. It was also later found to be, surprise, surprise, more addictive than both of those substances, and Sir Turner himself ended up being addicted to morphine. Of course, we also have the synthesis of diacetylmorphine, which was synthesized for morphine in 1874 and was resynthesized by one of the men that synthesized acetylsalicylic acid, which, if you listen to episode one, you know that's aspirin. And the diacetylmorphine was then brought to market by Bayer, again, our buddies from episode one. This drug was under the name heroin. Yep, that's right. Bayer brought us heroin. Thanks, Bayer. And they brought it to market in 1898 as a morphine substitute for a cough suppressant. So you get a little bit of a cough, do some heroin about it. And though morphine had been isolated previously, it wasn't until 1925 that the structural formula of morphine was determined by a man named Robert Robinson, which is just the most Stan Lee Marvel comic scientist name. So the modern way that we get morphine now is the exact same way that they used to do it. Poppies are still harvested for morphine. And unfortunately, that seems like it's going to be the way of it for quite a while. The stereochemical complexity and consequent synthetic challenge presented by it because it's a polycyclic structure Um, It's very unlikely that chemical synthesis will ever be as cost-effective so that it can compete with the cost of producing morphine directly from opium poppies. But in the quest to synthesize morphine, we got fentanyl, so isn't that just great? So now we can talk about what's going on with morphine these days. Um... Yeah, so a lot of what's going on with morphine and opium is dealing a lot with the opium epidemic. Scripps Research Laboratory of chemist Kim Janda, PhD, has been working on new therapeutic interventions that may be able to prevent the bulk of deaths from opioid overdose. Janda and his team have developed experimental vaccines that have shown in rodents to blunt the deadly effects of fentanyl, which has been the driving force in opioid deaths. It is also showing to be effective against fentanyl's even more fatal cousin, carfentanil, a growing source of overdoses and a chemical terrorist threat. There is also research in the University of Queensland to have found that molecules in tarantula venom could be an alternative to opioid painkillers for people seeking chronic pain relief. The venom of the Chinese bird spider which has a leg span of about 20 centimeters, could potentially relieve severe pain without side effects and the risk of addiction. 
There is also some new developments in fentanyl detection. At the University of Central Florida, researchers have developed an artificial intelligence method that not only rapidly and remotely detects fentanyl, but it also teaches itself to detect any previously unknown derivatives. So what's up with poppies these days? Now, of course, as we know, because I just said, they're still used and they're still harvested to produce morphine. Whatever. That's boring. We already talked about that. But what about in witchcraft? So in modern witchcraft, which is absolutely a thing, a plant like the poppy that has such a long, rich history of course, has many uses within modern witchcraft, and practitioners are very well aware of its ancient uses as well. Poppy is considered feminine in action. It resonates to the energy of the moon and the element of water. It's suitable for any rituals involving Hypnos, Thanatos, Somnus, Nyx, Demeter, Persephone, and for offerings to the dead particularly those who died in battle. Poppies are also considered useful in spells for fertility, agriculture, abundance, love, sleep, money, luck, and invisibility. And luckily for all of you, I have dug up a very adorable little spell that you can do. So you write a question on a small piece of paper, roll it up, and insert it into a poppy seed pod. Place the pod under your pillow, and your dreams will help guide you to your answer. And that pretty well wraps up the lore and history on our sleepy little plant friend, Papaver somniferous, the opium poppy. I don't know if you could tell during the course of this episode, but I am genuinely super hype on a lot of ancient folklore and myths, and it's one of my favorite things to read about, and I just really hope that you guys get a little bit of the same excitement out of it as I do. This has been episode three of Ghosts in Your Blood. If you want to keep up to date on new episodes and discussion, You can follow the podcast's Instagram page at Blood Ghosts Pod and Twitter as well. 